This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Walking the Path of Mortality. In the first half, J. Matthew Shumway shares his address, Our Journey Through Mortality. Then in the second half, J. Kelly Flanagan speaks on Cairns on the Path of Mortality. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here today. No, really, I I am. (laughs) I love words and word origins. One of my favorite words is serendipity, because it just kind of rolls off the tongue. (laughs) I know it's strange, but I I get a great deal of pleasure from saying certain words, and serendipity is one of those. Serendipity is defined as the occurrence and development of events by chance in a beneficial way. Its origin is attributed to Horace Walpole, an English poet and writer who coined the term from the heroes of the fairy tale, the three princes of Serendip, who, quote, were always making discoveries by accidents and sagacity of things they were not in quest of. According to Richard Boyle, the three princes of Serendip is an old Persian or possibly Indian fairy tale about three princes from Serendip who, having been taught by the wisest men in the kingdom, were sent by their father on a mission of observation. They discovered things by good fortune and sagacity, or discernment and wisdom. For example, in one part, called the camel story, the three princes use trace clues to precisely identify a camel they have never seen that has been lost by its driver. When the driver asks if they have seen the camel, they say no, but then they ask the driver if his camel is lame, blind in one eye, missing a tooth, carrying a pregnant maiden, and bearing honey on one side and butter on the other. The driver is astonished that they could know that much about his camel, having never seen it, and he eventually accuses them of stealing the camel and has them arrested. When they are brought before the emperor, he asks them how they knew about the camel, and they explain how they deduced the characteristics of the camel from simple observations. The emperor is so impressed with their wisdom and judgment that he not only spares their lives, he appoints them as his advisors and rewards them. The rewards, which were unsought, came serendipitously not because they had been seeking them, but because they were in the right place at the right time doing the right things. This reminds me of a statement expressed by former BYU professor and poet Arthur Henry King in his book The Abundance of the Heart, where he states, If we aim at self-fulfillment, we shall never be fulfilled. If we aim at education, we shall never become educated. If we aim at salvation, we shall never be saved. These things are indirect, supreme results of doing something else. And the something else is service. It is righteousness. It is trying to do the right thing, the thing that needs to be done at each moment. I love this quote. I love it for two reasons. First, the sentiment it portrays focuses on process or means and not ends. When I was an undergraduate student here many years ago, I took a summer job working for a very wealthy man. He was an interesting guy and, and one that I must admit I did not like very much. However, he taught me something I have never forgotten, and like Arthur Henry King, it had to do more with process and outcomes. At one point in our orientation, someone asked him what he was worth or how much money he made. He took this opportunity to teach us a lesson. He told us that he had only a vague idea of how much he was worth or how much money he made, as that neither of those were his primary goals. His goal was to deliver the best product in the most efficient way. He said that if you focus on the process, then the ends will come. In this case, the process was delivering a product, and the end was a high income. 
I decided to try and apply that principle to my schooling. Instead of focusing on the and, grades, I would focus on the process, learning. I determined that if I could go into every class with the attitude that I was going to learn as much as possible, put forth the effort to do so, then I would be happy with whatever the outcome. Although I still had a vague idea of how I did in every class, I never again picked up my report card to see my final grades. And those were in the days when you had to pick up your report cards. Uh, Did I get an A in every class? No. Were there classes that I was frustrated with, where I didn't particularly like the way a professor taught, or where I accidentally fell asleep in an 8 a.m. art history class because they always turned out the lights? Yes. And by the way, I feel bad about falling asleep in that class to this day, especially when I went to the exams. My grades did improve, but what I really gained was not improved grades, but an increased love of learning and freedom from worrying about whether or not I would be judged as good enough. The second reason I like this quote is at the end where it says, The thing that needs to be done in each moment. Life, for me, is just a series of moments. Most of these are normal, everyday moments that are difficult to differentiate one from the other. Moments that we rarely reflect on or even notice. Nevertheless, there are moments in life where, like the three princes of Serendip, we are in the right place at the right time, and where we need to do the right thing. I enjoy watching college football, and I have often heard it said that the outcome of a close and evenly matched game will be determined by just a few plays. If the players knew what those plays were in advance, they could specifically prepare for them and put forth their best effort on just those plays. But they don't know what plays they will be, and because of that uncertainty, it is necessary for them to be fully prepared and to put forth their best effort all of the time. To be in the right place, at the right time, doing the right thing in order to have the biggest impact. So those three or four plays in a game, or those five or ten or a hundred moments in life, will determine to a large extent the outcome. In many cases, we will not know what the plays or moments were until we can look back and analyze what happened. And when we do the analysis, we may find that it wasn't the big plays or moments that made the most difference. President Hinckley in the book Stand a Little Taller said, The course of our lives is seldom determined by great life-altering decisions. Our direction is often set by the the small day-to-day choices that chart the track on which we run. This is the substance of our lives, making choices. The choices we make fill in the details of our lives and determine who we will become. In ancient times, cartographers often labeled areas, large areas on their maps, as terra incognita, or places unknown. Because while they may have had a broad outline of the continents, they had little or no information on the details within. Similarly, as members of the Church, we have a broad outline of a spiritual map that provides information on where we came from and why we are here and where we want to end up. This map is called the Plan of Salvation. It is within the Plan of Salvation that our lives are given and we obtain meaning. I can't imagine not having such a blueprint for this life, and I will be forever grateful for the restoration of the gospel for the Prophet Joseph Smith, my ancestors who had the courage and fortitude to join the Church, and my parents who taught me in the language and learning of the gospel. However, while a great plan of happiness does provide the broad outlines of where we came from, why we are here and where we are going, the details are less clear. Even with the insights gained from patriarchal blessings, from current revelation, from modern-day prophets and apostles, we are still left with the terra incognita. I believe that most of us here today, for most of us here today, our spiritual maps have large territories labeled places unknown. That is, we have some idea of the beginning and know where we want to end up, but the question is, 
How do we get there? In a general sense, we do his Mormon counsel in 927. He said, O then, despise not and wonder not, but hearken unto the words of the Lord and ask the Father in the name of Jesus, for what things soever ye shall stand in need. Doubt not, but be believing, and begin as in times of old, and come unto the Lord with all your heart, and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling before him. So how do we work out, or keeping with the metaphor I've been using, how do we map out our salvation? How do we prepare for those moments in our lives when everything hangs in the balance, especially given the uncertainty of not knowing which moments will be the most important? How do we keep our perspective focused on the process of living the gospel? How do we integrate our lives into the gospel, their gospel into our lives, in such a way that doing what's right at all times and in all places becomes habit? I believe that while the underlying principles are the same for all of us, the details will vary as we each journey into those unknown places and begin to fill in the details of our maps. So as you continue on your journey in this life, I have a few suggestions that may help. First, show up. Someone once asked the director-actor Woody Allen why he was so successful, and he told them that 80% of his success could be attributed to just showing up. I believe that what he meant, or at least how I interpreted it, was not just that he was there, but he was there with the right attitude, as someone who was willing to learn, willing to work, willing to start something that may be difficult, and then coming back the next day knowing that it would be difficult. In my current stake, our welfare assignment is going out to the church dairy farm and doing whatever is asked. This includes moving the cows from one pen to another, branding, dehorning, fixing up, tearing down, cleaning, painting, so forth. It's not generally something most of us look forward to with great anticipation. But afterwards, it's something we always look back on warmly. When we received our new state calendar in December, we noticed that our ward's first assignment was on Saturday, January 3rd. This was a relatively short notice and over a holiday weekend. When we have the assignment, we usually meet at the church about 7.15, have some donuts and hot chocolate. and It's always amazing what the youth will do for a donut. They don't know what's coming. And head out about 7.30. We reach the farm about 8 and work for four hours. Now, some of you probably weren't in the valley on January 3rd, but it snowed the previous night. And when we woke up, up in Elk Ridge, we had close to a foot of snow on the ground. And it was cold. Now, none of the bishopric was able to go on this particular assignment. Dang it. And uh, we were worried whether or not we would have anybody show up. But show up they did. We had 17 people show up, which is about what we always get. But that seemed like a lot for such a cold and snowy day on a holiday weekend. It was later reported to us by the young men's president that the manager of the farm told him any time he sees a ward is coming from Elk Ridge, he never worries because he knows that people from those wards show up ready and willing to work. I felt, probably somewhat unrighteously, proud of my ward for showing up that day. Showing up, in this sense, equates to doing. One of my favorite scriptures is the entire book of James because it's about doing. For example, in James 1, 22-25, James says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Why is it so important that we show up? Does God really need us to do his will or his works? So why is it so important? 
because, as with all that God commands, He does it for our benefit. It is through doing the Word that we become converted. In a recent missive to all of the faculty and staff from John Tanner, he wrote the following, quote, In Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis wonders about why we are commanded by God to praise Him. What satisfaction can God possibly receive from our praises? Lewis then answers his own question in a way that I had never thought of before. He said, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise—lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise least. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. I had also never thought of praise in this way before, and as I started to ponder it, I had one of those moments, few and far between, when clarity struck. Everything God asks us to do is for our benefit, not His. I started to understand better King Benjamin's address to his people concerning how we are unprofitable servants. Because even when we do what is right for the right reasons, neither seeking nor wanting any reward, we are blessed because the very act of doing what is right changes who we are for the better. We become more Christ-like, which prepares us for eternal life, the greatest of all of God's blessings. Somehow, and for some reason, I always thought that such blessings were exogenous to the process, but they are not. To me, this is an example of heavenly serendipity, receiving a reward that was not sought because we were in the right place we needed to be at the time we needed to be there, doing what was right. Christ also taught this principle when he said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. The knowing doesn't come in some intellectual way. It comes by changing who we are. I believe this is what Alma was talking about in Alma 5.14 when he said, And now, behold, I ask of you, my brethren of the Church, have ye spiritually been born of God? Have ye received His image in your countenances? Have ye experienced this mighty change in your hearts? Conversion to Christ comes through the mighty change in our hearts, and the mighty change in our hearts can only come from doing His will. Thus, my first suggestion is to show up. Second, recognize and remember. Later in chapter 5, Alma asked members of the Church, And now, behold, I say unto you, my brethren, if ye have experienced a change of heart, and if ye have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can ye feel so now? One of the things I learned as I went through graduate school and since I've been teaching here at BYU is that we sometimes lean too much to our own understanding. Nephi warned us of this in 2 Nephi 9.28. O that cunning plan of the evil one! O the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men! When they are learned, they think they are wise, and they hearken not unto the counsel of God, for they set it aside, supposing they know of themselves. Wherefore, their wisdom is foolishness, and it profiteth them not, and they shall perish. It is clear that from everything that the Church says about education, that Heavenly Father values an educated people. We have been told in Scripture and repeatedly by prophets in this dispensation that we should gain as much education as possible. Lifelong learning is good. I don't believe there is ever too much learning or too much education, but we also need to be careful that our education profiteth us not.
Simplifying it somewhat, I think that learning can have two outcomes for our spiritual journey here. First, it can humble us. I have been amazed that the more I learn, the more I don't know. And students in my class are not so amazed. But that's nice. <laughs> Learning does require and lead to questioning, but it can do so in a way that is not destructive of one's faith. A more dangerous outcome of learning is that it can lead to hubris, to a discounting of eternal truths because they seem quaint or outdated, to a trusting in the arm of flesh rather than what current prophets and apostles tell us, to dismissing as coincidence those tender mercies that we receive from the Lord. In a talk given by Elder Bruce C. Hafen, he recounts the following story. Quote, a few years ago, a university student related to his priesthood quorum a boyhood experience that happened just after he had been ordained a deacon in the Aaronic priesthood. He had lived on a farm and had been promised that a calf about to be born would be his very own to raise. One summer morning when his parents were away, he was working in the barn when the expectant cow began to calf prematurely. He watched in great amazement as the little calf was born, and then, without warning, the mother cow suddenly rolled over the calf. She was trying to kill it. In his heart, he cried out to the Lord for help. Not thinking about how much more the cow weighed than he did, he pushed on her with all of his strength and somehow moved her away. He picked up the lifeless calf in his arms and, brokenhearted, looked at it, the tears running down his cheeks. Then he remembered that he now held the priesthood and had every right to pray for additional help. So he prayed from the depths of his boyish, believing heart. Before long, the little animal began breathing again. He knew his prayer had been heard. After relating this story, the tears welled up in his eyes, and he said, Brethren, I tell you that story because I don't think I would do now what I did then. Now that I am older, less naive, and more experienced, I know better than to expect help in that kind of situation. I am not sure I would believe now, even if I relived that experience, that the calf's survival was anything more than a coincidence. I don't understand what has happened to me since that time, but I sense that something has gone wrong. Quote. Is it any wonder that Christ taught us we have to be as little children to enter the kingdom of heaven? I do not believe that the fellow in this story is alone in feeling the way he does. Too many of us sense that something has gone wrong in our lives. Why do we stop believing? Why aren't the signs and signals from God clearer? Doesn't God want us to know for a surety? Why should we have to struggle with discerning between God's power and simple coincidence? Maybe a better question is, would a more direct manifestation of God's power cause us to believe in Him? And would that not eliminate our agency? In a previous mentioned article, Elder Hafen put it this way, quote, The Lord has used the highly visible forms of His power so sparingly, enough to leave us with clear witnesses, but not enough to compel us to believe. What a careful balance has been struck between too much and not enough in the manifestations of divine power. How essential, then, to be willing to recognize the quiet evidences for what they are. My second suggestion is to learn to recognize the hand of the Lord in your life, the whisperings of the Spirit that can and will guide and direct your path, and to remember with childlike innocence those coincidences that brought you closer to God. Third, enjoy the journey. Back to serendipity for a minute. John Barth, in his book, The Last Voyage of Somebody the Sailor, said, You don't reach serendip by plotting a course for it. You have to set out in good faith for elsewhere and lose your bearing serendipitously. I'm afraid that I was one of those people who set out for serendip and never seemed to get there. 
I thought that as soon as I reached the next milestone in my life, I would be happy. As soon as I graduated from college, or as soon as I got married, as soon as I finished graduate school, or finished my dissertation, as soon as I got my first real job, and so forth. And one beautiful spring day, late in the day, I was walking down the stairs towards the Richards Building, enjoying a spectacular sunset, and I had an epiphany. This was my life, and it wasn't getting any better than it is now. A spirit whispered to me to quit looking forward to what might be and start making do with what is. As I stood there feeling dumbfounded, I literally felt this enormous weight lift from my shoulders. Now, I would imagine if you ask people who know me, they will probably wonder if I have in fact changed. But I have. I have been blessed in my life far beyond anything I actually planned for. Trying to do the right thing in places I never planned on being has given me unsought-after rewards so great that I am continually amazed at how the Lord has blessed my life. Standing on those stairs, I realized that I had found serendip and didn't even know it. For the first time in a long time, I felt at peace with who I was, with what I was doing, and with where I was. I knew then, and have had it confirmed many times since, that I am supposed to be here doing what I am doing, although I do think I will be able to enjoy it much longer when I am no longer department chair. Hint, hint. <clears throat> True joy comes from preparing to make and then making the right choices in the right places at the right time, and then not worrying about what might or might not happen. In a recent talk by Elder Worthlin, he told the following story about Elder Matthew Calley. Quote, when Elder Matthew Calley was first called into the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, President J. Reuben Clark invited him into his office and counseled with him about his new assignment. President Clark was one of the great leaders and thinkers of the Church. He left a post as the United States Ambassador to Mexico to accept a position in the First Presidency of the Church. He was a man long accustomed to bearing the weight of heavy responsibility. As the meeting between Elder Cowley and President Clark drew to a close, President Clark said, Now, my boy, kid, President Clark called all the members of the Quorum of the Twelve Kid. Now, kid, don't forget Rule 6. Elder Cowley asked, What's Rule 6? President Clark said, Don't take yourself too darn seriously. Elder Cowley asked, well, What are the other five? President Clark said, There aren't any. <laughs> Life is a serious business, but not so serious that we should not enjoy it. Take the opportunities that have been given to us and make the most of them. And as Elder Worthland counseled in his last conference address, learn how to laugh. So my third suggestion is to enjoy the journey. Finally, endure to the end. In Lehi's vision of the tree of life, the path to the tree is straight and narrow. I don't know about you, but I've always envisioned the path as being on relatively flat terrain. And while the scriptures tell us time and again that the path is straight and narrow, it doesn't say anything about it being level. If my experience is any indication, you will be going down some steep inclines, up some rugged ravines, and across some raging rivers. It's not just the mists of darkness make it difficult to see the path. The path you are on will not always be smooth or level, and your journey will not always be easy. Nevertheless, staying on the path is the only way back to our Heavenly Father. And I want to be able to say, as Paul told Timothy, I have fought a good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Enduring to the end means remaining faithful to the laws and ordinances of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout your life and is a fundamental requirement for salvation in the kingdom of God. Enduring to the end is not just a matter of passively tolerating life's difficult circumstances. It requires faithfulness to the end. Obviously, this is not an easy task, but it was never meant to be easy. 
Our life's journey is intended to be difficult, challenging, and ultimately refining. Otherwise, we would not be pure enough to return and live with our Father in heaven and receive His eternal blessings. So when you get to the end of your rope, don't let go. Tie a knot and hang on until help can come. And I promise, help always comes. Anytime that I start to dwell on my difficulties in life—and I have teenage children, so I have lots of difficulties—my mind turns to Joseph Smith's experience in Liberty Jail and what the Lord told him. These few verses simultaneously frighten me, make me feel guilty for dwelling on my inadequacies and tribulations, but ultimately give me hope. In Doctrine and Covenants 122, 5-7, it reads, If thou art called to pass through tribulation, if thou art in perils among false brethren, if thou art in perils among robbers, if thou art in perils by land or by sea, if thou art accused with all manner of false accusations, if thine enemies fall upon thee, if they tear thee from the society of thy father and mother and brethren and sisters, and if with a drawn sword thine enemies tear thee from the bosom of thy wife and of thine offspring and thine elder son, Although but six years of age shall cling to thy garments, and shall say, My father, my father, why can't you stay with us? O my father, what are the men going to do with you? And if then he shall be thrust from thee by the sword, and thou be dragged to prison, and thine enemies prowl around thee like wolves for the blood of the lamb, and if thou shouldest be cast into the pit or into the hands of murderers, and the sentence of death passed upon thee, if thou be cast into the deep, if the billowing surge conspire against thee, if fierce winds become thine enemy, if the heavens gather blackness and all the elements combine to hedge up the way, and above all, if the very jaws of hell shall gape open the mouth wide after thee, know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. Wow. Can't you just feel the weight of all that and the world pushing down on Joseph Smith? Just reading that passage makes me grateful for my relatively insignificant problems, and I'm pretty sure I don't want that much experience in life. Nevertheless, it is through such refiner's fire that the Lord prepares us for those moments in our lives when we will have to stand strong, when we will have to keep the faith, when we will have to endure. We don't know when those moments will be, so we will need to, like a good scout, be prepared. Be prepared so that you can serve the Lord in those moments that will determine your fate. I believe that if we endure our experiences well, then the suffering, the pain, the uncertainty, which are but for a small moment, will prepare us for greater things. In verse verse 8 of the same section, the Lord gives us some more perspective when he states, The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? How can we not endure our short and relatively painless experiences when compared with Christ's incomprehensible suffering? Maybe we should think of it a little differently. Jesus Christ suffered greatly because he had to pay the price for all sin. And because he suffered for us, he understands our suffering, our pain, our grief. I believe that some of the experiences we have are so that we may have increased empathy. Once you have traveled the steep and rocky slopes on the path of life, your ability to help others safely negotiate the path increases, and God can use you. Finally, in verse 9, I once again feel hope. Therefore, hold on thy way, and the priesthood shall remain with thee. For their bounds are set, they cannot pass. Thy days are known, and thy numbers shall not be numbered less. 
Therefore, fear not what man can do, for God shall be with you forever and ever. We really are here in mortality for such a short time. Knowing the plan of salvation is real will help keep the troubles, disappointments, heartaches, and trials we have in a proper perspective, an eternal perspective, a perspective that gives us hope in salvation through Jesus Christ. Please know that God loves you. He wants you to succeed, and He will be with you forever and ever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Walking the Path of Mortality. We've just heard from J. Matthew Shumway. After the break, we'll return with J. Kelly Flanagan for Cairns on the Path of Mortality. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Walking the Path of Mortality. Next is J. Kelly Flanagan, Vice President of Information Technology and Chief Information Officer at BYU at the time of this address, titled Cairns on the Path of Mortality. Last summer, my wife and I had the pleasure of backpacking in the High Uinta Mountains with our oldest son, Justin, and three of his friends. We had a wonderful time fishing, camping, and simply observing God's creations. Of course, a large portion of the trip involved hiking. As many of you know, hikers or backpackers encounter a variety of trail conditions. On any given trek, flat, straight, and easy-to-locate trail segments can quickly become steep, rocky, and obscure. When trails become difficult to find, considerate hikers often place markers on the path to map the way for those who follow. These markers are built by stacking several rocks to form what is called a cairn. Cairns are spaced so that a hiker standing near one can readily see the next. By walking from cairn to cairn, a backpacker can successfully traverse the previously unseen path and reach their final goal. Significantly, cairns only have meaning for those who recognize them for what they are. For some, cairns are nothing more than a pile of rocks. For others, they are helpful markers on a trail. And yet for others, willing to examine in further detail, Cairns can provide even more specific directions. For example, a stack of rocks with a small stone to the right of the stack indicates that the trail heads to the right. Similarly, a rock on the ground to the left of the cairn indicates that the trail heads to the left. A basic understanding of these structures makes it possible to obtain the final goal. But by being more informed about the nature of cairns, the journey can be even easier. During our backpacking trip, each time my wife and I would reach a cairn, we would stop and look for the next stack of rocks. When we didn't immediately find it, a sense of being lost was quick to enter our minds. But that feeling instantly vanished when we located the next small, simple landmark. This experience using cairns caused me to reflect on our journey through mortality. Things can be going so easily, life is smooth, goals seem obtainable, and the path is clear. 
When life feels like this, it nearly always changes. New challenges arise, goals dangle out of reach, and the path seems unclear. It is during these moments of confusion that we need to refocus on the single goal of coming unto Christ. Heavenly Father has provided a plan for us to obtain this goal, and Christ has made it possible for each of us to obtain it through His atoning sacrifice and our obedience to His commandments. To clearly mark the difficult path through mortality and help us obtain this goal, Christ has placed markers along the path that leads back to the presence of the Father. The second verse of the hymn, I Believe in Christ, reads, I believe in Christ, who marked the path, who did gain all his Father hath, who said to men, Come, follow me, that ye, my friends, with God may be. In a church publication describing temples, it states that, quote, Prophets, scriptures, and temples help guide Latter-day Saint youth, unquote. Prophets, scriptures, and temples are three spiritual cairns that can successfully guide us through life. First, let's consider the scriptures. The scriptures act as a cairn by helping us find answers to our questions and by giving us comfort in times of distress. When lost on the trail to Heavenly Father, we can look to the scriptures for voices of warning, for the glorious promise of eternal life, for the example of a perfect life, for answers to our questions, for comfort from our trials, and for the law that we must keep to obtain eternal life. President Howard W. Hunter stated that, quote, Obedience requires that we search the scriptures to know the law. In order to be obedient to the law of the gospel and be obedient to the teachings of Jesus Christ, we must first understand the law and ascertain the will of the Lord. This is accomplished best by searching and studying the scriptures and the words of the prophets. Unquote. This mortal life occupies a short period of time in relation to our eternal existence, and it should be emphasized that it is simply one part of our eternal trail. A long trail can be composed of many segments of varying terrain. Two long and easy identified segments can be connected with a short portion that is obscure and difficult to traverse. If we keep to the first long segment, we will eventually reach the short segment, which is difficult to follow. If we fail to keep on the short connecting segment by following the cairns along the way, we will be unable to find the final path that leads to our eventual goal and will be lost forever. This, of course, relates to our eternal existence. We have all been successful in following our pre-mortal trail and have reached this earth life, where we will be for a very short but important period of time. During this mortal life, we will encounter cairns that, if followed, will lead back to our heavenly home. I remember coming across my first cairn on the path to eternal life when I was a 17-year-old member of another faith. A high school friend I had had for three years came over to my house to get help on his trigonometry. While working through his homework, we began talking about typical high school topics, including girls, car stereos, jobs, and, of course, our personal beliefs in the nature of the Godhead. 
I described to him my beliefs that God the Father and Jesus Christ were separate and distinct beings, and that they had bodies much like ours. I explained that these were my own views and not those of the Church I occasionally attended. My friend, my eternal friend, smiled and reached into his book bag and extracted a small book that he said I should read. He indicated that his Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, believed in the Godhead that I had described. The book he had given me was The Pearl of Great Price. While this book is not typically used as a missionary tool, in this case it was extremely effective. I read the entire book that very night and followed that cairn that led to many others. If we follow the cairns while here on earth, we will remain on the path that leads to eternal life. In Lehi's vision of the tree of life, a path that represents mortality runs along the bank of a river. Mists of darkness envelop the path and symbolize our individual trials and temptations. An iron rod, which signifies the word of God, runs parallel to the path and through the mists of darkness. Individuals entering this life from their pre-mortal existence find themselves at the beginning of the path that runs the length of the river from where they stand to the tree or eternal life. When Lehi was looking for his family to partake of the fruit of the tree, he found that the head of the river and the beginning of the iron rod was not far off. In other words, even though it is of the utmost importance that we make it from the beginning of this mortal life back to the presence of our Heavenly Father, the journey is not very long. In the first book of Nephi, chapter 8, we read, And I looked to behold from whence it came, and I saw the head thereof a little way off. And I beheld a rod of iron, and it extended along the bank of the river, and led to the tree by which I stood. We later learned that those who held firmly to the rod of iron were able to travel from the head of the river through the mists of darkness and arrive safely at the tree. And they came and caught hold of the end of the rod of iron. And they did press their way forward, continually holding fast to the rod of iron, until they came forth and fell down and partook of the fruit of the tree. On the other hand, the numberless concourses of people who did not hold to the iron rod were lost and were unable to stay on the path that leads to eternal life. And it came to pass that they did come forth and commence in the path that led to the tree. And it came to pass that there arose a mist of darkness, yea, even an exceedingly great mist of darkness, insomuch that they who had commenced in the path did lose their way, that they wandered off and were lost. Those who successfully made their way to the tree of life did so because of their reliance on the word of God. The counsel of Alma to his son Helaman in the 37th chapter of Alma, verses 44 and 45, summarizes the necessity of holding fast to the word of God. For behold, it is as easy to give heed to the word of Christ which will point to you a straight course to eternal bliss, as it was for our fathers to give heed to this compass, which would point unto them a straight course to the promised land. And now I say, is there not a type in this thing? 
For just as surely as this director did bring our fathers, by following its course, to the promised land, shall the words of Christ, if we follow their course, carry us beyond this veil of sorrow into a far better land of promise. This mortal life is our path to the tree of life, which is but a little way off. Although our journey in mortality is short, Lehi helps us understand that mists of darkness could cause us to lose our way and our reward if we don't catch hold of the word of God and hold fast to it while pressing forward through mortality. Recall that cairns are placed close enough together that an observer standing near one can see the next. Due to a visual impairment I've had since birth, it isn't possible for me to stand next to a cairn and see the next. Fortunately, I hike with my wife, who helps me along the way by giving me audible directions and warnings of potential pitfalls. This assistance is similar to the words of a prophet, which helps individuals find and stay on the straight and narrow way. A prophet is the second spiritual cairn I wish to discuss today. President Joseph Fielding Smith identifies these prophets, quote, All saints should be prophets. Every man who can say knowingly that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Redeemer of the world and the only begotten Son of God is a prophet. A president of a stake has a right to revelation in his stake and for the guidance of it. A bishop in his ward and likewise a missionary in his mission field. Every other member of the Church who is called to an office has the right to the inspiration and the guidance of the Spirit of the Lord in that which is given him to do. If he is so inspired, he is a prophet." Unquote. These prophets are entitled to inspiration and revelations for quote, that which is given him to do, unquote. and not for other groups or individuals outside of their stewardship. President Gordon B. Hinckley is the prophet, the only individual currently entitled to receive revelation for the Church. His stewardship includes not only members of Christ's Church, but every individual on the earth. Many people hold offices in the Church for short periods of time. Those who lead today will be followers tomorrow, and those who follow today are tomorrow's leaders. The lives of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ clearly teach this principle. The Bible teaches that as John the Baptist's ministry progressed, he became very popular among the believers. After baptizing the Savior, John's disciples came to him with a concern. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. Now these disciples were concerned because their master was losing prestige and influence. But the Baptist understood that his time was coming to an end and the Savior's mission was beginning. He replied, He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus Christ also recognized that there was a time to teach and a time to learn. At the time of the Passover, Jesus' family traveled to Jerusalem. Upon finishing their business, they returned to Nazareth. After traveling for a day, Joseph and Mary noticed that Jesus was not in their company, and they searched for him for three days. 
They finally found him in the temple, teaching and answering questions of those who were astonished at his learning. Jesus returned with his earthly family to Nazareth, and as stated in the second chapter of Luke, verse 52, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This experience illustrates that Jesus was a master teacher, but also understood that there were things to learn from his association with parents and family. At some points along our mortal path, we are followers, and at other points, we are leaders. We lead those within our stewardship, and we follow those entrusted with our care. When we act in positions of leadership, it should be exactly that—leadership. Not draggership, not pushership, but leadership. We should lead and guide, not drag and push, individuals to Christ. Although directed at those holding the priesthood, I am sure the 121st section of the Doctrine and Covenants applies to all. In verse 41 we read, No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned. We find another example of appropriate behavior as a leader in the hymn, I Am a Child of God. Lead me, guide me, walk beside me, help me find the way. Teach me all that I must do to live with Him someday. While in positions of leadership, we should be guiding, accompanying, and helping others. We should be teaching them what to do to remain on the path that leads back to their eternal goal. On our hiking trip, I was unable to see the cairns that were intended to keep me on the path. Fortunately, my wife understands what it means to be a leader. She guided me, walked beside me, and helped me find the way. With her help, I was able to traverse the obscure path and reach our destination. By leading others in this fashion, we become cairns on the path through mortality. When we don't follow the cairns established by Forest Service officials or by a caring hiker, we run the risk of being lost. We must follow the prophets, whether they are our parents, home teachers, bishops, stake presidents, or general authorities. Often, small children and inexperienced hikers do not understand the usefulness of cairns and are tempted to knock them down. Without malice, they simply give no thought to why anyone would stack up a bunch of rocks. They topple the cairns with a good kick and a thud of satisfaction. How often do we, as young and inexperienced members of Christ's Church, innocently kick down or dismantle the individuals that are serving in offices of responsibility. When we speak evil against the Lord's anointed, we break down the Lord's cairns and potentially obscure the path for those who follow. We must recognize the need and usefulness of prophets and make every attempt to sustain, build up, and support the men and women who serve in the Church to keep us on the path to our heavenly home. Finally, we come to the third spiritual cairn, the temple. There is power in the temple that gives each of us direction and dispels the feelings of being lost. 
Members of the church and friends of other faiths by the thousands come to participate in temple open houses. Young children look to the temple as a place where they can one day come and be married for eternity. Worthy youth visit the temple to participate in the sacred ordinances of proxy baptism and confirmation. And worthy leaders and worthy adults come to the temple for their own endowments to be sealed and to perform these ordinances for the deceased and those who are unable to fulfill them for themselves. The temple gives gives us directions by helping us set goals of staying or becoming worthy to enter the temple and perform sacred ordinances for ourselves and others. Brigham Young explains the importance of receiving these sacred ordinances. Quote, Your endowment is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord, which are necessary for you, after you have departed this life, to enable you to walk back to the presence of the Father, passing the angels who stand as sentinels." Although this is of utmost importance, there are additional ways in which the temple helps us remain on the correct path. The temple's teachings help us to better understand our relationship to our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ and help us understand our mission here on earth. These truths aid us in finding our way in a confusing world. In a 1999 church publication describing temples, it states that, quote, In a turbulent world of conflicting values and mixed moral messages, Latter-day Saint youth know that the temple, like a compass, points the way to eternal truth." The truths shared in the temple often include personal teachings and revelations intended to answer personal prayers and provide feelings of peace and comfort. President Howard W. Hunter stated that, "...personal blessings come from temple attendance." And we again emphasize the personal blessings of temple worship and the sanctity and safety that are provided within those hallowed walls. It is the house of the Lord, a place of revelation and of peace. Unquote. President Gordon B. Hinckley added, quote, The temple is also a place of personal inspiration and revelation. Legion are those who, when in times of stress, when difficult decisions must be made and perplexing problems must be handled, have come to the temple in a spirit of fasting and prayer to seek divine direction. Many have testified that while voices of revelation were not heard, impressions concerning a course to follow were experienced at that time or later, which became answers to their prayers." The temple stands as a cairn for all members of the Church. Worthy members of the Church should attend the temple in whatever capacity they are entitled. If members are not worthy to attend, they should take whatever measures are necessary to become worthy. As we attend the temple, we will be blessed and gain the knowledge and testimony necessary to keep us on the path that leads back to our heavenly home. In addition, we may receive personal revelations and inspirations that will not only help us reach our eternal goal, but will make this life more bearable and enjoyable. Cairns are placed on trail to guide us across trail segments that are unclear and difficult to find.
I have described three spiritual cairns today that can help guide you safely through mortality—scriptures, prophets, and temples. Keep in mind that while hiking, you must actively seek out the next cairn. You cannot simply hope or wish to be further down the path. You must walk, step, and strive. I challenge each of us to actively pursue spiritual cairns. Don't simply read your scriptures. Hold fast to them. Search them. Use them in your life to solve problems and acquire answers. Follow the prophets. Seek counsel from your parents, home teachers, bishops, and other local and general authorities. Sustain your leaders and help them perform their work by helping others understand the importance of their callings. Look to the temple. Live worthy to enter its walls. Attend often to perform sacred ordinances and gain personal revelation and inspiration to assist you in reaching your mortal and eternal potential. Following these cairns will make your life here on earth easier and more fulfilling, and most importantly, it will help you stay on the eternal path that leads to your Father in Heaven. Our Heavenly Father lives and loves us and has provided a plan by which we can return and live with Him. Jesus Christ lived on this earth, atoned for our sins, and lives today. If we are obedient to the Lord's commandments, we can use Christ's atoning sacrifice and live again in the presence of our loving Heavenly Father. Christ has provided help along our mortal journey in the form of the Holy Scriptures, our beloved prophet Gordon B. Hinckley, and the temple scattered throughout the earth. I testify of these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Walking the Path of Mortality with thoughts from J. Matthew Shumway and J. Kelly Flanagan. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.